0: Hey, if you have a Bible, turn it open to Acts 11, and we'll get right, right into it. Um, we are, uh, oh, also, before I forget, we are on just January 27th. We're doing a dedication uh, for our kids. So those of you who are raising kids and want to do a child dedication, this is a time to pray over the kids, and for us as a congregation to respond to parents and say, we're in it with you, and we'd love to support you. Um, if you have a kid you're interested in uh, dedicating your child before the Lord uh, is in prayer uh, for the sake of the kingdom, then um, let us know. We have a little sign-up sheet at the back community table where the computer screen is. Feel free to drop by there. Or when you pick up your kids, there's a, a sign-up sheet on the check-in table as well, or check-out table. So, um Right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that you are a God who communicates, that you don't leave us in the dark, but we know you because you want to be known. And you have told a story uh, that renders your character and your purposes uh, in such a way that we can respond to you in trust and surrender and that we can be participants in that story of redemption, so Lord, we give you this time and ask that your Spirit uh, awaken us to your truth and uh, and help us trust and respond in obedience in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Acts eleven verse nineteen, we are teaching through Acts. Um, Acts is a story. If you're new with us, it gives an overview of the first 30 to 35 years of the church. It's simply an overview. It doesn't tell you everything that happened. Uh, It tells you some of the things that happened. Uh, It's not setting out a model of this is how an idyllic church should look. It's just telling you what God did. And there are lessons throughout and things to imitate and things to avoid. There are things in the story that show us that the church was messed up then, just like it's messed up now because there's people in it, right? and so it is a story as well that tells us that the church was powerfully redemptive then, just as it is powerfully redemptive today, because the Spirit is in it. And so this book of Acts picks up the storyline from Volume One, the Gospel of Luke, uh, and and it carries the same storyline that the other three synoptic Gospels, the chronological story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. It it picks up this storyline about Jesus, uh, and the storyline of these Gospels, and Luke in particular, is the storyline of God's kingdom, the the governance, the rule, the reign of God come among us. And uh, this announcement that the kingdom of God, the, the rule and the reign of God is at hand, is really the the good news announcement of Jesus, right? And so his life and his death and his resurrection all uh, fall under this this basic declaration that the kingdom or the rule and reign of God is at hand. and And if you just stop with that phrase for a second, um, in fact, it, it gets picked up in Acts chapter one, and then at the end in chapter twenty eight, the kingdom of God is really the bracketing. Uh, Bookends of the story; it's telling you all of what's happening in this story is about this kingdom of God. And if you pause for just a second and ask just a basic, fundamental question, when we talk about a rule and a reign of a God, we should probably ask, like, which God, right? Like, what God is it that we're talking about? Well, uh, it is the God who exists as a relationship of persons, of Father, Son, and Spirit. This is this is the God that's revealed in the Gospels. Jesus is the one who refers to. The Father and talks about the sending of the Spirit and all three, one God, and so God exists not as a self. Uh, I'm sorry, not as a solitary being, uh, alone, needing creation in order to be loving. But He exists as a self-sufficient community of mutually self-giving love. The Father doesn't. Uh, the Father is the Father because He loves the Son. The Son's the Son because He's loved by the Father and returns love and they share this love with the Spirit, this is who God is. And so when we talk about a kingdom of God, it's bad news if that God is solitary and love isn't in his nature. But when we talk about the rule and the reign of a God who in his essence is a self-giving community of love, that's actually good news to the world. That the God who is self-giving love, who is a community of persons, who is a loving relationship in his essence, if that God is reigning and ruling, then that's good news to the world. And so Acts picks up this storyline, and so there's this kind of outgoing nature of this gospel, this good news. The gospel is spreading. The word of God is spreading across geography and social boundaries, and that spreading of good news mirrors the nature of the God whose good news it is. He's outgoing, outward-facing. He's not a withdrawn, solitary being, but a God whose nature is to give love. I don't know if you're with me. This isn't your typical sermon intro of like, here's what I did this weekend. We dove right into it. I hope you're okay. Seatbelt's on. But this, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about a God who is self-giving love and he's reigning and he's ruling. And so this Acts story is a story about that God. Let's just be very specific about it. We won't be able to make much sense of the stories, the little stories, unless we get the big story. And the big story is about that very particular God. And so um, <clears throat> when you think about what that God is up to before creation, it's always loving. He's always giving and sharing. He's outward facing, and outpouring into the other, and so he creates as an overflow of love to share and invite that creation into that community of love. And so the story of the church that's entrusted with the gospel is the story of a community that spreads God's goodness across boundaries in the same manner that God has, that incarnates in a context and puts flesh on a message that expresses the riches of God's grace in a particular place. And so we can't actually look back and go, we should be like the church in Acts, because there's no one church in Acts. There's multiple churches in Acts. There's a church in Jerusalem, and then there's a later church in Jerusalem, and then there's a church in Antioch, and in Galatia, and Philippi, and Corinth, and each church is an expression of the gospel in a context. And so it helps us to look at our own context and say, what does the gospel look like for Beaverton? How do we remain faithful to the message and express it accurately for this place and this time as this people? And so uh, this story of a father who sends a son and the father and son who send a spirit, and the spirit with the father and son that sends a church is the storyline that we're invested in learning about here in Acts. And back in chapter 6 and, verse, and chapter 7, we met this person named Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr. They were killed for proclaiming Jesus as Lord, for sharing good news, because it was seen as a threat to the powers and those who wanted control. And so uh, the result was persecution. The, 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 the powers that be... Um, crunched down on the church and persecuted. And the result of that persecution was it moved and mobilized the church outward from a place of comfort, honestly, a place of uh, only interacting with people who are culturally very like me. And so the gospel was kind of uh, stuck in Jerusalem. And then This persecution against the church broke out, and now people are spreading all over Palestine and now the borders beyond. And so last week, we read about this Roman centurion, a Gentile, that is a term for a non Jewish person. So everyone that's not Jewish is a Gentile. And the result of Cornelius, uh, the centurion, his story is that he was moved by God to reach out for Peter, and Peter came and told the gospel, and now he and his family have received the gospel. They've embraced Jesus as Lord. And so it sends a shockwave throughout the Jewish church that's used to one ethnicity responding to the gospel, and now all of a sudden all the nations are being welcomed in, and it's, just, it's a total paradigm shift for so many of these Jews. So we're going to look at the story as it moves forward beyond the threshold of Judaism into the first kind of Gentile city where the gospel takes root. Uh, We live in a Gentile city. We live in a very secular city, very similar to this city that we're going to read about today. Uh, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch, by the way, you can look at it on a map, is up by, it's modern-day Syria, okay? And so... um, It received, ironically, it received refugees from Jerusalem, right? And so here we are in Antioch. And um, let's see. Let's keep reading through this. Um, They land in Antioch, and these people who are persecuted and moving about uh, away from persecution are speaking the word that is the gospel to no one except Jews. So they're staying within their very comfortable social boundaries, right? I'm finding people who carry the same assumptions, who look the same, sound the same, act the same as me. And I'm safely sharing what I've learned about Jesus with those people. But it says, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. And a Hellenist, again, going back in time, uh, Hellenism is a label for a culture. It's a Greek-influenced culture, and so the language is Greek, and many of the cultural practices are Greek. And so, this may mean Greek-speaking Jews or people who've adopted a very different set of cultural assumptions than the Jews. Um, these are the people across a social boundary that are now being addressed by the good news, and so they <clears throat> says that they preached the spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21 says that the hand of the Lord was on them, or with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And so this persecution moves the Jews who believe the gospel out into this, the, the Jewish community that's dispersed all around the Mediterranean world. And so they move, some of them, just into very socially and culturally comfortable zones, and they stay there. But it says that the hand of the Lord was with those who went across a social barrier, who looked at a culture that was different and fearlessly stepped into it, made friends in that context, and shared the word or preached the Lord Jesus. And so as they go across this barrier, we see that God's in it. He's moving with the church, and he's moving the church. And there's two things I want to point out here about what we're learning about the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord in this context. When the gospel is planted, the fruit is a local church. This is just how it works. When the gospel is planted, the fruit is a local church. The story of Acts tells us what happened. It's not offering a model, per se, of what we are to do, but it is telling a story of what God did do, and perhaps there are some things that he always does. The difference between a model and a story is the focus. A model says, here, if you follow this list, right, and you do these things, these results will happen. A story says, here's what God did, and here's what he does, And so the focus in a model is on me, and the focus of a story is actually on God. And And so here's what God did do. He sent people who shared a message. They told a story about the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, and that story found resonance with some people and others it probably bounced right off of. This is no different than your workplace today. You'll find that there are some people in your neighborhood or at work who they resonate with these things that you're talking about, about your life and your hope and your practices. There's others, it just bounces right off of. And so the gospel goes out through a people, and so they're witnesses to news. They have news to tell. And God's Spirit's working powerfully, and it brings about a movement in this city. It's a secular city in many ways. It's not religious in the same way that that Jerusalem would have been. It's known for its immorality in a lot of ways, and so there's a, a, a very pluralistic Religious landscape in Antioch. It's there's, uh, it's actually it's like the Chicago, I guess you could say, of the ancient Middle East. It's the third largest city, right? And so, I don't know what that says about their pizza in Antioch, but it was, it was a big city, right? It was the third largest in the Roman Empire, and that meant it was diverse culturally, religiously, and it was there was a city underbelly, and there were <laughs> respectable people, and there was. There, were, there was a whole mix of people. And so this, this story is telling us what God did. He sent people who shared a message, and that resonates with some because the Spirit's working. And so we see this throughout Acts, that God will call a people to himself. It doesn't always look the exact same. Uh, in fact, sometimes we see in the story the Spirit comes in power, and people speak different languages, and other times that's not mentioned at all. Sometimes it mentions people getting baptized right away. Sometimes it doesn't mention that at all. But the point is the same. They hear a message about Jesus and respond in faith. And they begin to align their life around Jesus, and it forms a community, a a gathering of people, a church. And so Uh, every time the storyline of Jesus is proclaimed, there's a response of trust and obedience and a people are formed. And so the gospel goes into a context. Um, We see this in the gospels, actually, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You see in Luke in particular, since uh, he wrote Acts, I'll I'll think about his gospel. Let's see. Um, Go to the next slide. So Jesus will show up in a context. He'll be walking through Galilee or wherever. Let's just think about like the first nine chapters of the gospel of Luke. Jesus will interact with people in their brokenness, and he'll meet somebody who's paralyzed or who's a leper, or there's, their life is shaped uh, by captivity to some form of brokenness, to sin or to uh, their uh, physical brokenness. And he calls them to then become a follower. And so they join in they, they're they healed, they're met by him in some specific way that begins to bring freedom for their life, and they join into a band of followers. And so as they continue to follow Jesus, he then sends them back into the brokenness of the world to partner with him, and, they, and more people become followers with him, right? And so it's this kind of constant cycle. We see this in Acts. We see the good news about Jesus now, because... Jesus has ascended and he sent the Spirit to be in the church so that the church represents Jesus now. And part of the way we represent Jesus is we talk about Jesus. And so we talk about Jesus in a culture. And so we go into Antioch now, and there's people there who are from share totally different assumptions than Jews, and they're hearing this story. And the story summons them to allegiance or obedience of faith, and they become the church. And so the church then is in this relationship to culture. It's not outside of culture, it's always in culture. And so uh, the more the church grows in its understanding of the gospel, right, the more it moves back into culture with a message. Right? If the church withdraws and retreats and stops, Actually sharing the message, it's not really the church anymore. We need culture. We are culture. We're embedded in culture, and we need to be in dialogue and a missionary relationship with the culture, or else we won't be the church, because we're actually called to be a people who represent a king. And so we're not who we are when we're we're withdrawn, but nor are we who we are when we're exactly like culture, when we're not actually any different, when we share all the same assumptions, because the gospel comes in and says, I'm creating a whole new set of assumptions in your life, that you're loved that there's hope, that there's resurrection, that you're called to account. Right? These kinds of things change us. Anyway, so this is what the pattern is throughout Acts. I don't know where I was going with all of this. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Um, so the church is constantly called to bear witness in its context, not withdrawing and not with compromising, but in embodying the message we believe and actually demonstrating it to say Jesus is Lord and the kingdom, his reign and his rule and his governance is here and it's shown up in our life and in our community. And so we pull our resources together and we love each other and we actually serve one another. This is always what happens when God's outgoing love intersects with any given culture or people. There's a message, uh, it's shown and it's told and then there's a people who are called out to partner with that sending of a message. I don't know. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Okay. This is who you are, by the way, right? We're in a context. You are a church. You have a gospel to proclaim good news. And so um, before we move further, though, into this story, it, it is really important that we grasp this reality, that we can plant a church and miss planting the gospel. And this this actually startled me this week. As I read through this text, I thought of us, and I thought, we have this really beautiful advantage in that we have a critical mass, like, which is super exciting. It, like, feels socially viable to see other humans and go, like, oh, maybe something, God must be doing something, right? It's also really great that we can take turns watching kids upstairs. I say we, I'm never doing it. You guys can take (laughs) turns watching kids upstairs, because I'm doing other stuff, okay? And, uh, and, And so we get to We get to do that, right? Like, if there's 10 of us, it's a lot harder, right? We'd have less kids, but they'd be just as loud, okay? And so we actually get to pull our resources and share and do some cool stuff. And you can plant a church, and then if you miss planting the gospel, you're actually not a church anymore. You're just kind of a club, and you'll eventually die off. Um, And so that's the disadvantage. It's easy to kind of come in, and there's some size, and you can lose all the urgency of planting the gospel, But when we plant the gospel, a church comes up, right? And so we have this beautiful opportunity to be the church and to plant the gospel as the church, um, to be a church that actually is a lens for the people outside the church to see what does the gospel look like. Is it really self-giving love or is it something else? And so as we commit to each other and to planting the gospel by speech, and action, showing and telling, uh, it it actually uh, makes us more and more who we are. So let's not uh, miss planting the gospel as we plant as a church. Um, Planting the gospel results in a church that grows up in that soil, and so that is my prayer, that we would be an accurate lens of the gospel and that we would be faithful in planting it. Now, when I say that, I don't mean go anxiously try to make a bunch of people believe something that they don't currently What I'm saying is be who you are. You are a witness. Just share what you know, what you've experienced from the grace of God. You have a story to tell. Luke has stories to tell because the gospel messed with people's life. You have a story to tell because the gospel's messed with your life. And so you actually have good news to tell. You don't have to be anything other than what you are, which is a witness to the reality of Jesus, alive and reigning as King. This is the second thing, though, that happens um, that I want to point out, that when the gospel is trusted, it results in turning to Jesus as Lord. The text says that all who believed turned to the Lord. It's interesting to me that it's trust as a response to the message about Jesus that leads to a change. It's not, hey, I need to change so I can be more acceptable. I'm going to get my nose clean so I can start following I actually only start following Jesus as a response of trust to the message that He's actually he loves me, and he gave himself for me, and he calls me into that communion of love that we talked about at the beginning of this message. And so there's a response of faith that generates a new life characterized by turning. Turning is literally just a change of mind. Like, I'm changing my mind about how I'm thinking about my life, thinking about the world and its meaning, And I'm turning from it, and I'm changing my allegiance from most likely selfishness to serving another king or lord. Um, You cannot have a kingdom without a king. Uh, We try, and and we fail. There is always someone ruling. So what happens when we turn from a a self-centered life to a life that's aligned with the reign and the rule of God? as we actually become good news to people around us, because we're aligning ourselves with a God who is self-giving love. And, And so turning is not simply about leaving behind a bunch of bad behaviors, but it's specifically about turning to Jesus as Lord or as Master, as a Master not only of my life, but of the world, which means since he's master of the world, he's not freaking out about how things are going. It means I don't have to freak out about how things are going. And I can live at peace because not only is he master of my life, he's actually master of the whole of human history, and we're going to be okay. And so it leads me to be a non-anxious presence in my world. Um, it's to look at my life and ask, where am I not currently turned toward the Lord? Like, where am I actually turned away from him? Where is my life and my world not ordered by his kingdom? Let me get to work there with the Spirit in faith and obedience to turn myself and my world toward being ordered by his kingdom. And so the gospel is not primarily about calling us to a new level of moral management. It's an invitation to become like a person in turning toward that person and orienting my life around their reality. Um, and so, yeah, let me, let me move, move forward here. Uh, there is a, a beautiful opportunity for us this morning to read this story and ask, am I viewing Christianity as just a list of principles or a transaction or ultimately about orienting my life around a person who is good news? who is self-giving love, and has drawn me in and invited me into that relationship of perfect love. Verse 22 says that the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when they came, they saw the grace of God. He He saw the grace of God, this guy named Barnabas, and he was glad, and he exhorted told them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember this guy? Jesus converted him on the road to Damascus. He struck him blind and all, like reoriented Paul's life. Well, this Saul's life. He'll become Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas, um, we think maybe is from Cyprus. Uh, we're not entirely sure, but he's part of this crew. He relates to this crew in some way. And so in Jerusalem, they said, why don't you go, since you're culturally similar? And, uh, and he goes up, and he sees what's going on, and he's absolutely astounded. I love Barnabas because he's always quick to accept what God has graciously done. The Jerusalem church is really slow on that. They're like, I don't know if this is real. Barnabas immediately sees Saul turn his life around, or Jesus turn Saul's life around. He's like, yeah, yeah, he's legit. He's one of us. right? He's always defending what God's grace has accomplished. I love that. Uh, he's quick to see transformation. He's quick to see redemption. I want to be more like Barnabas, way less cynical and skeptical and be a lot more encouraging like Barnabas. And so He goes and he checks things out and he rejoices over what God's done and he exhorts them and he says, hey, be steadfast. Don't drift. You've turned to the Lord. The gospel's got a hold of your life. Now don't drift. Be devoted. See, we got to take turns with that. Like, um, they're awesome, actually. Uh, in fact, a, a, a church that is faithful and is devoted is a church that's committed to learning. I love this. Barnabas gets there, and he sees all these people. They've turned to the gospel, and he says, you know what? We've got to hire a staff team, <laughs> right? And so what does he do? He goes and he gets Paul or Saul from Tarsus, and it says that they spend a year together teaching uh, and instructing the church. And so a faithful church, in order to to fill out Barnabas' exhortation to be faithful, to not drift, to stay devoted, it, to be that faithful kind of church means we have to be committed to lifelong learning. And so I want to keep this point short, but uh, if devotion was primarily just about maintaining some kind of emotional high, instruction would be pointless. Right? This is actually, in order to be faithful, you have to be rooted. You actually have to have truth be the anchor of your life. And so he goes and he gets Saul, and they teach. And uh, In fact, this is actually just doing what Jesus told them to do. Back in Matthew 28, he says, uh, you are to, remember, uh, baptize, uh, you are go to make disciples of all nations, right? Uh, And you're to baptize them or immerse them in the name, the identity and the purposes of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And so that's what they're doing. In fact, um, I, I don't know why I didn't know this until this week, but the word make, disciple, the make isn't even in Matthew 28. It's just disciple. It's a, it's a verb form of disciple. Disciple means a learner. And so when you verb learner, it just means learn. Right? And the only two other times where the verb form of disciple shows up in Matthew is in relationship to Jesus and the kingdom. And so a follower of Jesus is to learn Jesus and learn the kingdom. And so that's what they're doing. They're getting with the disciples in Antioch, and they're learning them. They're just they're instructing them. It's, that's awesome. So they're just doing what Jesus told them to do. So communities get really weird when they stop learning. I don't know if you've noticed this. But once we just start congratulating ourselves on where we are, and aren't inviting the challenge of instruction from the scriptures, we get weird. At the same time, communities get just as weird when they only learn and never implement, right? And so the learning Jesus has in mind is a holistic learning. It's like, be rooted in the scriptures by living it out. And so don't get weird by not learning, and don't get weird by ignoring it, and just like learning more information and not actually applying it and so a faithful church learns and puts what they've learned to work. And then the second thing here is faithful expressions of the church have a very distinctly Jesus-like character. The Christians at Antioch learned this because it's there that they're first called Christians. They got labeled as a result of their public lives. People looked at them and went, Ugh, "Christian." Right? We tend to read that and go like, "Oh, they were first called Christians." Like it was a compliment. I'm not convinced it was a compliment in Antioch. Like, it was ah, Christians, right? Christians, like you people who are sold out and focused on this Messiah, right? Whose life is marked by his ways, which in most culture looks like weakness. You live interdependent lives. You, like, are... You're just not like it. You challenge our assumptions. And it, I don't know that Christian was a positive insinuation. I don't know what the tone was like, but let's imagine that it's at least nebulous. It may be a compliment. It may actually just be a slur. And it's fascinating to me that the only time the word Christian appears in the New Testament three times, once here, they're first called Christians in Antioch. So it's a description from people outside the community of the community. You people are Jesus-y. You're into this Jesus, right? Acts 26, where Agrippa, one of the leaders, political leaders, says to Paul, uh, oh, in such a short time, you want to persuade me to become a Christian? Right? Again, an outsider is speaking this, like, really, you think you're going to get me to become a Christian? And then 1 Peter 4, it says, if anyone suffers for being a Christian, in contrast to suffering for being a murderer or a thief. He's like, if you're a murderer and a thief and you suffer, that's, your, that's on you, right? Like, don't do that. Right? But he says, if you suffer for being a Christian, right—that that is, somebody from outside the church is looking in and persecutes you for your association with Jesus, he says, that's not a matter of shame. That's actually a matter of glory. And so all three uses are at the intersection of outsider's perception of the Christian faith. And so it's a term that kind of fits at the crossroads. It's, it's not a label for someone who just has private interior faith convictions. It actually defines somebody with a demonstrable life that people look in and go, that's like Jesus. It's someone who adheres to Jesus and his way. And so it's a label that only fits a uh, a perceivable life of faith. And so to be a Christian from within is a compliment. From without, it may not be. The point is uh, that when... When we are, uh, let's go to that next point there on the slide. When when we are, oh, it doesn't fit on the slide. Sorry about that. Um, when we are faithful as the church, we are distinctly like Jesus, and it's it's impossible to ignore. All right. Now, finally, the those days some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And now one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that they, there would be a great famine in all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. There's a historical marker on when this happened. It was probably about a 15-year period of famine throughout the, the known world, and it kind of shifted where the focus was. And so it would have hit Palestine in, in this era. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send a relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, uh, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. There's two really quick things I want to point out here about this, the church in Antioch and how it is contextualizing the gospel. First of all, God always gifts the church to keep it from being ineffective, Um, Without spending too much time here, we can hit it uh, some other time. This guy, Agabus, is gifted by God with a prophetic gift. It, It means he's able to call out and discern the truth in a particular way and invite the community into a faithful response to what is happening. And here uh, is why it matters in this text. See, God gifts the church to respond faithfully to the things that God is doing in every context the church finds itself. And Agabus is this person that God uses to help the whole Antioch church be a faithful expression of Christ's self-giving. And I would say to you, every person in the church is gifted by the Spirit in some way to help the whole thing be a more faithful rendering of God's self-giving love to the world. Every one of us. And so Agabus uses his particular gift to kind of call the church to action on something. And so here's how it played out. He says, there's going to be a famine. Uh, In other words, uh, there will be a lot of people who are going to be hungry, right? Uh, uh, We had this happen this Christmas, right? When uh, I'm not Uh, calling you a prophet, Susanna, if you don't want to be, but you did stand up and you said, I see a need this Christmas with the families I work with, right? And so there's going to be a need, right? And you helped call us to action. And so then the whole church said, yeah, great, let's give generously. And you gave generously and helped five families not only make it through Christmas, but have a delightful Christmas, right? And so uh, you communicated the self-giving love of God to a context. And so this is what Agabus does. He calls the church to action, and the community responds in faith and generosity. And, and so that's the second point here, that the effective church then generously gives itself away. So we see how this whole thing moves. The gospel comes into a context, and it always generates a church. And to receive the gospel means to turn to Jesus as actually master and Lord of your life. All right? And then this moves, and the church, that church that's turned towards the Lord, always keeps learning and is distinctly Jesus-like. And God continues to give gifts to the church to keep it effective. And an effective church is a generous church. It's a church that gives itself away to its context. And so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And so we see the church respond to the famine in the Mediterranean world. And I love this. Now it's the Gentile church that's looking at the Jewish church, and they're saying, let us help you. Let us help you, right? They've blown way past animosity at this point. They don't care. They have a new Lord, and they're united as one church. Great. Why wouldn't we send what we have to those who don't have it? And so it's not just a self-centered church in Antioch that only cares about Antioch. It's a part of a global Jesus movement and they're saying we're tied in as family across contexts. And so we're happy to serve and we're happy to give. And so they pull their resources together and they are generous in that way. And that's where we've tried to put our roots to begin just with the school district and say, we're here and we want to give and be for you. And so that looks like some of our crew helping out with the Beaverton High School Beaverden to say, how can we serve this cause to help the people who are in deep need, who associate with this every week? How can we help make that a great experience? How can we help that uh, meet needs? Uh, It it looks like um, 5% of everything we give as a congregation goes to the next church plant, which actually they're announcing in Tigard this week we're planting on the east side this year, and so uh, you'll meet Ben Tertine, who's going to lead the east side gathering and, uh sometime next month. I'll have him out, and he'll preach. And um, but what's happened is you've already made it possible for us to to hire a founding pastor, and and he's gathered a team, and there's a momentum, and people who are ready to see a Colossae East right planted on the east side, and so. Uh, That's what we're committed to. We give ourselves away. And so this pattern moves from a people who receive the gospel who then become the gospel. We enact it and we demonstrate it through self-giving love. I love this description of the church as a people of self-giving love, a people who give according to their ability. I don't know what your ability is. You may have the ability of time, the ability of finances, the ability of gifts or skills, the ability of relational capacity. The question is, for all of us, am I offering what I'm able in service to the gospel? Right. And I would ask you, if you're here, be here. If you're here, be here in such a way that you offer what you have ability to offer for the sake of the gospel in community. And we will, in fact, be effective if we all say, "I'm in. I'm going to serve." Uh, I'm going to help set up kids' stuff upstairs every other week. I'm going to serve. I'm going to help set up stuff every. I'm going to serve, and I'm going to buy my coffee here, so coffee for a cause money can go right back into the Club Hope at Beaverton High School and help homeless kids. I'm going to give my abilities wherever they are in relationship to the body of Christ. That would be the call here. Now um, we'll see that the Antioch Church isn't perfect. But we see the fruit of what happens when the church grows from the soil of the gospel. Our first three months as a church, we began, before we had Sunday gatherings, all summer, we prayed one prayer. Uh, We prayed around Jesus' declaration of the kingdom. He said, now the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And for three months, we just prayed around that. God, we want to see your kingdom. God, we repent of our false loyalties. We repent of divided hearts. Right? And we believe the good news. We believe that what you've done is good news. Right? And so what that prayer life looks like is it's it, it, it orients us as a congregation to say we will be effective when we live generously and say our lives are not for us, our church is not for us. We want to give ourselves away to the world. And so I would invite you this morning just to see where God has generously provided for you, and to live as a response of that, to say, God, thank you for generously providing for me. And we celebrate this at the tables every week. The the generosity of God has come to us in flesh and blood, that Jesus Christ has been utterly generous, that he's given his life in the place of sinners, to be judged in the place of sinners so that we can be redeemed and forgiven and set right. And so we go to the table not only to look back, but we go to the table to look forward, and the table reminds us of the end of history. It signals a future feast and celebration when heaven and earth are wed. And so we celebrate at the table that our needs will be more than covered in the end and that we are welcome to the feast. And so we are able to live in the present assured of a future. And that's why we go to the table. We go to the table to draw the future into the present to say, I, I, I take this bread and this cup to declare I'm fully accepted in the fellowship of God. I take this bread and this cup to declare this history is moving towards joy. And I can be a signpost of that in my world, and we can be a signpost of that in our world. Let's pray.